Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Hello and welcome to episode 190 of the Chills of Will podcast. Pleasure today to be joined by Ellen Burkett Morris. And a bit about her, she's an award-winning multi-genre writer, teacher, and editor based in Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky. She's the author of Surrender from Finishing Line Press, and her poetry has, been, has appeared in Thin Air Magazine, The Clackamas Literary Review, Juked, Alimentum, Gastronomica, Three Elements Review, and Inscape, among other journals. She won the top prize in the 2008 Binnacle Ultra Short Edition and was a semifinalist for the 2009 Rita Dove Poetry Prize. Her poetry has been nominated for the Pushcart Prize. Her fiction has appeared in Shenandoah, Antioch Review, Notre Dame Review, South Carolina Review, Sliver of Stone, Great Jones Street, Santa Fe Literary Review, and Upstreet, among other journals. She's the 2015 winner of the Bevel Summers Prize for her story, May Apples, and won the Betty... Gabehart Prize for Fiction. Morris's plays have appeared in Mud City Journal, Monologue Bank, and Plays, the drama magazine for young people. Her 10-minute play, Lost Girls, was a finalist for the 2008 Heidemann Award given by Actors Theater. Lost Girls received a stage reading at Cincinnati's Arnoff Center. Her essays can be found in trade paperback books, including Nesting, It's a Chick Thing, The Writing Group Book, The Girl's Book of Love, and The Girl's Book of Friendship, in journals including Brevity Blog, The Common, The Butter, The Femme, and South Loop, South Loop Review, and on National Public Radio. Morris teaches creative writing at the Loft Literary Center in Minneapolis and the Carnegie Center for Literacy and Learning in Lexington, Kentucky. Ooh, that's a mouthful. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Thank you. Did I get the stress right? Is it Burkett? Burkett? Uh, you know, we say Burkett as if it was a you, but okay. uh, but I have relatives who say Burkett. So, uh, yeah, I'm just doing what my dad did. Yeah, <laughs> there was a bit of possibly a Freudian slip where I said Louis, Louis, Louisville, Lou, and it was Louisville, Louis, Louis, right. Louisville. And I was like, the more you slur it, the better it is. Louisville. There you go. There you go. <laughs> well, well, heck of a CV, heck of a resume, and I'm just so impressed at you know, the diversity, the variety of all of your creative work. And I'm, I'm pumped up to talk to you. I'm excited to talk to you. Thank you so much. I'd love to know about kind of the beginnings, your early reading and writing and your relationship with the written word was, you know, magazines and books strewn all over the place at home. Um, kind of what was your early relationship with, with the written word? Yeah, my father was a writer himself. He was a self-taught man, uh, came from Detroit kind of a Detroit street tough who, mm -hmm. who, you know, left the city, got drafted, came to Fort Knox, oh. but was really hungry to learn stuff. And so there were books of all types, uh, philosophy, science, 
uh, you know, every kind of thing and just, and lots and lots of fiction everywhere. And mm. so reading was something that we all did together. Uh, he would take us to the library story hours, but he would also do things like read us Flannery O'Connor short stories as mm. bedtime stories, <laughs> which is, you know, really can get in your head when you're a kid, you know. I, I sort of credit some of what happens in my book of short stories, Lost Girls, to the influence of those kinds of really Southern Gothic stories early in life. And mm. and so story was a big thing in our house. I, you know, I, I put together my own stories as a kid. Um, you know, I still have it. It's it's lined paper bound with ribbon, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so it was always something that I that I like to do. I'll be honest and say that I was really afraid to do it um, professionally. I was afraid to pursue it with any vigor because I was afraid I'd be bad at it. Mm. And um, I reached my mid 30s and I thought, you know, if you don't do this now, you're never going to do it. And of course, I was bad at it because you have to be bad before you can be good. And mm-hmm. and uh, started writing poetry, got some small success there, and it sort of catapulted me into other kinds of writing. Hmm. So I don't know if I don't think Sam's the right name, but there's you have a character in one of the last stories, maybe the last one, who is from one of the big cities, maybe Cincinnati, and came to Fort Knox. Maybe kind of relate, maybe kind of uh, based on your dad a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it really could be. Yeah, yeah just the general yeah. vibe, perhaps. Sure, yeah, sure. yeah. You know, you talk about like not being good at writing, and we all get that. It's you know starting off. Was it were they too? Was your work overwrought? Was it too emotional? Were they not realistic? Is it, is it, is it easy to kind of pinpoint how they were not good? You know, that's the thing. I mean, I think with poetry, particularly, you know, the pit the the early pitfalls are always either you know, too sentimental or perhaps too jokey that you may have the tone wrong. Mm. You know, I think too, that as you, as you write, you begin to learn how to pick just the right word Mm. for what you're trying to say. And then, you know, as I continue to write, you begin to learn sort of the magic of sort of populating stories and poems with very specific items that then gain metaphoric weight as you as you tell the story. And so all of that was just incredible to see how, you know, to see kind of how this really works. And the more I did it, the the sort of better I got at at you know, doing that world building, which is really what anybody right. wants. They want to be dropped into the world of your story or poem or right. yeah. So maybe 20 to 25 percent i can give you some royalties i want to use metaphoric weight the the term you just used can i use that for like my next book my absolutely book? all right i'll give you 20 25 you know something like that something there we go <laughs> you mentioned flannery o'connor did you read you know quote unquote southern writers did you read all right like who were some of the writers who were really um instrumental in kind of shaping your your likes and dislikes and preferences. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I read, I did read a lot of Southern women writers. So Bobby Ann Mason's early mm-hmm. short stories, you know, were so fantastic. Barbara Kingsolver also started with short stories. And then of course, everything she's written is just, you know, fantastic. And, and I'm so thrilled that she got this long, long deserved prize, you know, the Pulitzer that was so good. Uh, you know, I remember reading uh, Elizabeth Berg, partly because she, although her stuff wasn't really literary, she would she would include in that like insights about human nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and and 
Um, you know, honestly, I really liked Hemingway a lot. I mean, I like the economy of his sentences. Mm. And so that's something that I've always, well, my, my real writing training was in journalism. So I've learned to write short. And so I think I carry that sort of economy into the, into the short stories that I write and that you're not going to see a lot of really lengthy stage setting with me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm kind of going to get you right into that story. Definitely. So those were some influences. And then here of late, you know, um, Elizabeth Strout, the intimacy of her, of her writing and the help, how just deeply into her characters heads uh, she gets. It's kind of amazing. So. That's interesting. You talk about you. You really do. I mean, you get right into the action, and it's um, and that's a skill because it's like, okay, cool, we're here. It's not like, wait, wait, what happened? Like, it's you know, there's a lot of the there's a lot in the silences in your in your work about what's not said, about what's not written that that speaks so so loudly. I happen to read yours on on ebook, and you know, like it shows you like two pages at a time. Yeah. And so, like, I would sometimes like accidentally I'd skip and I'd be like, wait, is that? Like all that happened in that short time, you know, I look at them like, yes, it did. Wow. Like that's, and that's a an, an total compliment. Like, man, the, that economy of language, the Hemingway, the, I don't know who, who the name's thrown out, like Raymond Carver, that kind of thing. But it was like, whoa, that all happened in a page and a half or two. Like, man. Pretty yeah. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I do think that that sort of, you know, packing all that stuff in also gives it a sort of a velocity, you know, mm. as, a, as a story itself in terms of the dramatic pace of it. And also, um, you know, just emotionally when you're when you're just drop right into what matters. The key is that, you know, people understand why it matters, you know, why it matters. Yes. Um, yeah. You, you're talking a little bit about the, the current writers. Anybody else who really you know, inspires and thrills like, oh man, I can't wait for her next book, his next article. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love George Saunders. I think mm -hmm. he's fantastic. You know, he does stuff I could never do and he does a lot of really weird stuff, but he does it so very, very well, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so I really, really like that. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, I really enjoyed M Rebecca Mackay's latest book. Okay. I have some questions for you where she talked about, uh, uh, the uh, murder of a of a young woman at a boarding school, but at the same time as the, that, she focused on this particular case. She also sort of wove a narrative about women in general and the ways in which they get, you know, um, you know, kidnapped or murdered and and disappeared, and and she did it a really in a really kind of graceful way. So the focus was both really large and also very focused, you uh -huh. know. So I really like her work too. You know, as I mentioned, you know, Elizabeth Stroud, I always kind of wait for what she's what she's got coming out. I, I just recently, actually just today, finished Yellow Face. And I don't know if you've nice. heard about that. Yes, definitely. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's just so, it's such a kind of incisive portrait of the publishing world and what mm. it feels like to be in it and social media and the way people are treated in that and the sort of loneliness that can be a part of the job and mm. and for this particular character, even some level of desperation, which was really hard to watch, but also very captivating. So I feel like it was yeah. just today or yesterday that somebody on Twitter that I followed said like read that like in one in one sitting type of thing that read that book. It was yeah. something else. Definitely got to get to it. Oh, I appreciate yeah. that. The main thrust of the conversation is going to be Lost Girls, the short story collection. But like, I'm just like so impressed. You know, there's 
you know, it was made into a play. Uh, it was like about maybe 15 years ago. Um, or the 10 minute play was lost girls. You know, there's poetry, there's fiction. Do you, I mean, what are the creative muses? Like, how do you manage to write in these different mediums? Um, you're talking about dramatic pacing a little while back. I mean, is that, you know, those kind of things you think about differently when you're writing poetry versus fiction? Oh, absolutely. I, yeah, I do think it's all, I do think it's all different. And I think part of it is, I think having been a journalist really primed me to try different stuff, you know, because I was used to doing things on assignment. So I could sort of pretend that I was okay, write a poem, write a poem about this or, or, you know, let's work around with short stories or, hey, let's try a novel, you know, and I felt comfortable trying different things because I'd written different kinds of stuff before, before that. And, and then, you know, I guess sometimes the thing itself dictates what it's going to be. Mm -hmm. So I had this anecdote about me and my father where I, I was young, we were watching Saturday Night Live and, and the Rolling Stones were on, on the screen and Mick Jagger goes over and he starts to literally lick Keith Richards lips. And, and I was like, wow, what is going on? I was really fascinated. My dad was like really freaked out. And I thought, well, this is an essay about like the different ways, different generations view things. Started to try to write it. Really, it was a poem. So it turned out to be a poem about, you know, uh, it, it because it was just that moment. It was that moment of when we realized that we saw this thing completely different, mm. you know, and then I sort of, for the poem, created a moment with his father where he was, had his ear to the radio, you know, and it been his father, but his father wasn't, you know, interested in what he was interested in, you know, so, so it's like letting things kind of tell me what they're going to be, mm. figuring out what they're going to be. And, and so I've got a novel that's going to be forthcoming in 2024 that began as a short story i took it to a workshop the workshop leader aaron flanagan who's out of dayton ohio who's so fantastic said you need to up the marital tension in this short story so i did and then she said wow you know i think this could be a novel well eight years later mm -hmm. <laughs> many 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 drafts <laughs> um so i guess part of it too is that you're open you know that you're open to trying the different stuff or you're open to expanding those things that might have the potential to be ex expanded. And in terms of my publishing credits, I would say that that's a function of fearlessness when it comes to submitting, mm -hmm. be you know, because I was used to having my name in print, I, I sort of had a, a, a predisposition towards wanting that. And so I was pretty fearless in submitting and so I would get tons of rejections, but in, for every 150 submissions, I might get two or three acceptances. And that sort of fueled me to continue the work and to continue to send out. So, mm. yeah. You, you were mentioning the novel. Um, I don't know what you what you can tell us about, uh, about Donald L. Jordan, et cetera. Oh, absolutely. So there is, there's a sort of somewhat, little known literary prize called the Donald L. Jordan Prize. Donald L. Jordan himself just died recently. He's he's a businessman who has endowed a literary prize in perpetuity mm. uh, at Columbus State University in Georgia. Mm. And it's administered by Alan G., the writer Alan G. And it is a $10,000 prize. 
and a publication contract. Uh, so it's pretty astounding for, for writers. And mm -hmm. this past year, I, I entered, I entered twice. And, and this last year I was a finalist. It was being judged by Lan Samantha Chang of the Iowa Writers Workshop. Yeah. And, and she picked the book. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So talk about a boost in, in confidence and, yeah. and, a, a, you know, a real vote of confidence. And so it'll be out uh, next February. Um, but I would encourage people to look at it because they do a book every year mm -hmm. and uh, every year they've got a judge who's, you know, like her, who really knows their stuff. And, um, you know, and, and again, I, I sort of, you know, shoot high because you really don't know work, 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 and then shoot high. Right. I mean, that's sort of my philosophy. Congratulations. That's so cool. Thank you. I'm I'm super excited. It's called Beware the Tall Grass. Mm -hmm. It's it's a novel in alternate uh, viewpoints between a mother of a of, of the parents of a young son who has past life memories and the Vietnam soldier whose memories the son has. Mm. I'll be sure to post information on the on the episode notes here. You know, for the prize again, it's called the Donald L. Jordan Prize. And to quote LeVar Burton, don't take my word, nor even Alan's for it. Miss Chang's blurb from about the book is, quote, in this beautiful novel, two stories separated by half a century intertwined to create an indelible narrative of peace and war. In the throes of his first loss, young Thomas joins the army and travels to Vietnam, where he's propelled toward his fate. Decades later, in another time and place, Eve and Daniel welcome their infant son and resolve to set aside their own family ghosts. But is it possible to release the past? Can powerful experiences of love and death ever be forgotten? Through surprising and suspenseful turns, Beware the Tall Grass explores the evocative mysteries of time and memory. Wow. Unquote. Very cool. Thank you. Lost Girls came out in 2020, is that correct? Yes. It was June of 2020. <laughs> well, I was just going to ask, so like, was that, I mean, I assume it was done way before, well, before COVID hit, but how did that work with like publicity and all that too? You know, it worked, I mean, it was really, really tough. I did a online launch event with my local independent bookstore, yeah. Carmichael's Bookstore, okay. with the writer Lee Martin from mm -hmm. Columbus, Ohio. And so that was lovely. And we had a nice little crowd. And we had a great conversation, but really, honest to God, you know, there was just so little that could be done. Mm -hmm. I sort of, because I have a background in public relations somewhat, mm -hmm. I sort of spent the first couple years of COVID working to get the book out there, mm -hmm. um, doing podcasts, sending out press releases, approaching people who had columns, writing guest columns, mm -hmm. uh, submitting it for review. But it was, but it, and it was, I went through a very small press. So the onus was really on me to do all of it. Yeah. And uh, I did it partly because as long as I was thinking about that, I wasn't thinking about COVID. Hmm. So, Dude, that's like kind of parallels just the whole, my podcast in general. My podcast first episode was April, 2020. Give you something to do, right? Yeah. A way to be creative, a way to get out there, a way to talk to great people. The collection is, like I said before we started recording, the, the, the collection makes you feel. I mean, wow. There are some, there are some big emotions. There's, some, there's an incredible amount of profundity in the collection. 
is it do you call it a linked collection there are a few characters you know that come back around and we're more or less in the same settings but they're not yeah. exactly the same would you would you call it a, a linked collection i would i would call it a loosely linked collect loosely. collection of stories okay. and i was thinking about winesburg ohio okay i was thinking about uh, particularly with some of these characters had a little odd twist to them mm -hmm. and so Sherwood Anderson talked about grotesque and he talked about, you know, how these people all had something that was a little bit different. So that was kind of what I was going for there is that I was going to give some of these characters just a little bit of a twist, set them all roughly in the same small town, right. you know, gonna, th there's going to be that pressure of everybody thinking they know each other well, mm. you know, do they or don't they, right? Mm. I mean, everybody's got their own secrets and their own things they're dealing with so the first story is called is called lost girls is the titular one it's it's i mean is that a short short is that a is that flash fiction would you yeah it? i think I it's know. technically flash yeah uh, and it really you know i mean it, it sets the tone in many ways it has the same title you so actually going backwards slash forwards a little bit the the author knows mentioned that the book collection is that the story collection is a lot of it is based on a real life incident in your life i wonder if you can maybe give us a little background on the kidnapping yeah yeah so so the that story in particular really is the thing that sort of sparked my desire to do a collection around issues that involve women and girls wow. and so uh, the kidnapping itself happened when i was a senior in high school and a uh, the child of some russian immigrants her name was ann gottlieb got kidnapped from uh, this mall that was that was near where I lived at the time. So so there was the there was the this mall. There was a field that you could cut through to get you know into the neighborhood. A field I'd walked through many times before, and she vanished. And you know it's I don't think they ever really solved that one. My primary thing with Lost with the story was that behind it is this idea of. How do you remember somebody who has been lost to history because something because of something like this? How do you honor them? You know, more than remember, how do you honor them? But I also complicated it by giving the girl protagonist some complicated feelings and emotions of her own surrounding her own parents and the lack of attention that she feels she has. And, and you know, I made it a little more complicated than, oh, I just I feel sorry for the girl who was taken or I miss her, I want to honor her. You know, there was, it was a little more complicated than that. And so. You talk about how these complicated feelings Her One of her quotes, the narrator is no one would notice if I was gone. So she's, I want to say 18. And, and the one who was missing was Dana Lampton. She was 13. 13. Yeah. Right. And so the narrator, I mean, she feels these, she feels like a type of, I don't know, envy when she sees like Dana's parents on, on the news, you know, arm in arm, because like you said, her, her parents' situation is, is not a clean one for sure. Um, and just this whole idea that like the narrative keeps feeling like that could have been me. And so she feels like she's living for Dana. And then it, every year she leaves something like at the, she leaves something as tribute. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And by the time the story's done, it's, you know, it's been eight years, you know, Dana's 21 and it's just, Again, you're so good with what's not written. It just makes the the reader think like, what, how much has happened in that eight years? How much, you know, what has happened to Dana? She's still with us. How much the narrator has changed? How much the world has changed? And all in that really compact, um, compact piece, right? 
Thanks. That, yeah, I mean, that's it. You know, I, I do think it's important to trust your readers, uh, you know, trust them to get what you're going for and trust them to fill in those blanks as they see fit, you know, with these stories. I mean, I, my biggest fear is always, am I, is this overdetermined or am mm-hmm. I telegraphing things mm-hmm. versus letting people come to their own conclusions? The second story is called Inheritance. There's sexual abuse. There's rape. The, the narrator at the hands of of Daniel. Daniel is the son of the woman who has just died, right? And so, I'm sorry, I, I forget. I'm not sure if the narrator's named in this story. You know, I don't know that I've given you a name in this story. <laughs> I know you've got. I don't think I've given you one. <laughs> you've, probably written, you've probably written eighty thousand words, a hundred thousand words since then. So I don't blame. You. But but there's this idea of like that she. So she, so the story starts out with her like staring at this at this woman who's who's laid out in the, you know, in the coffin, so to speak. And she's the sin eater. This it's this um, this tradition, I guess, that's that's identified with the quote unquote the rabble, which is what the older son says when it, you know from the upper class and all that. Is this a real? I almost didn't do the research on purpose. I'm usually all Wikipedia out, but like, yeah. is this a like is this a British or British descent or people in the South? Like, is this a about the idea of the sin eater? I, I've heard basically yeah. about it, but yeah. Yeah, this from what I've heard is it 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 is of British origins, mm-hmm. and I, really I learned about it from my um, sister in law, Jonna Walden, who lives in Lexington. She's a librarian, but she comes from uh, Western Virginia, mm-hmm. and she was talking about folkways, and she was talking about people saving people's teeth or their hair and stuff like that. And then she started talking about sin eating and it was too great an idea for me to, to let it go. You know, it was just such a fantastic idea and I kept it and I kept trying to write about it. And it took, um, it took being around like, you know, the election of 2016 before I could really figure out what it was I wanted to say. And it had to do with, oppression and it had to do with people without resources yeah. trusting people with resources to do the right thing for them for them pun intended or not you said it's a very grave idea but i'm bummed it's too grave an idea not to use there's a sadness in the story i mean obviously there's a, there's a deep deep sadness in many ways one of them that really hit me is very sad was that the mom the mom of the narrator she she would see like this family as like benefactors, right? And so when when the narrator kind of you know runs away or gets away, she would say like, "Oh, what are you doing? Like these are our benefactors." And just this idea of like being like you talk about oppression and seeing your oppressors as kind of keeping you going and you know kind of that perverse way. You know, she basically on multiple occasions is the victim of of rape from Daniel, who's the son. And when the sin eating is done, when she does it a few times. There's, she she makes herself vomit and then you know she eventually becomes pregnant with his child and and she decides to escape. I'm gonna you know leave leave the ending of that story alone. But the title is so 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 resonant. Inheritance. I wonder kind of what you're going with that again without being didactic about it. But it's just it's just I felt like it was so important and so resonant. Yeah yeah you know I I think it it can mean so many things I, I really do believe that we that we inherit sort of certain traits just by virtue of our dna you know i find that that different generations of my family have had different strains of things you know they're dreamers or they you know they 
they they sort of are gamblers or they believe in luck in some sort of way, you know, whatever it is. But I also think, you know, we can inherit things like, you know, institutional poverty and stuff that those kinds of things can be handed down, you know. Um, and, and then, of course, you know, there's this idea that you're going to inherit somebody else's sin by eating a cake off their dead body, which is a whole other meaning to it. So I don't consider myself very good at titles, but that one really, really worked. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the ending, again, will make you feel, <laughs> just put it that way. Very, <laughs> very interesting and, and moving and affecting story. Can yeah. I say that it was hard to write? It, it, th that is That was a stage in my development as a writer when I made myself finish this story. This story is the most raw, um, the, the most emotional, the most heart-wrenching thing yeah. I've ever written. Mm. And, you know, I, to make myself write the ending that I wrote was really, really hard. I'll just leave it there. Yeah. Well, I mean, saying ever is pretty strong, but I, I could clearly see why. Yeah. Why that'd be the, the hardest one ever. Oh, man. Religion is the third one. So Alice... Alice walks into uh, thinking she's going to, how do you pronounce it? De decoupage? Decoupage, like uh, pasting things on, yeah. on campuses. Right? And she knows yeah. she, she thinks she's going to one of those classes at the local you know, community center. But instead, she, uh, she stumbles into a breastfeeding uh, group, right? Right, right. Uh, you know, again, and, and it, I started with the premise that social groups like breastfeeding groups or other kinds of groups can feel like cults sometimes, ah, can feel yeah. very much like cults. But when I started writing the story, I ended up someplace else completely. Mm. I ended up with the story about how loving those people were and how much she wanted to belong to the group, even though she didn't belong there at all. So she didn't belong there at all. She, like you said, she's, you know, she's single. She doesn't have kids. She, she lied a few times about, Oh, my son's, you know, he's with his grandma. She loved him so much. And, you know, but, but yeah, she really got a sort of intimacy with that group. Obviously there's maybe no greater intimacy than, you know, breastfeeding with a, with a mother and baby, right. Just connections. She even goes so far as to get like a breastfeeding pump, right? Yeah, yeah. I thought, let's just take this, let's just play this straight and take it all the way down the line, you know? <laughs> and I have to say, while there's a lot of tenderness and sadness in the story, when I read it aloud, it's a, people laugh and that's yeah, the best thing. Exactly. Yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of humor there for sure. There's, and yeah, behind every, you know, behind every joke, there's a seed of truth and there's, there's definitely a, a dark humor in that piece uh, for sure. Harvest, man, this idea of Abby, the narrator, she, at the beginning of the story, she basically, she gets rid of all her mirrors, not even like covering them up because people will be like, what are you doing with that, right? She gets rid of all her mirrors. She she basically calls herself, it, you know, she talks about, I'm invisible now, now that I'm older. She's, you know, a woman of a certain age. I don't think it says exactly how old she is. I think I do. Right. But, yeah. you know, she she's invisible. She's like, man, I never thought I would go obsolete, that type of thing. And there's so much in that story, again, it's called Harvest, just about like vitality, right? And vitality that, that she, she longs for. Um, talks about the days of berry picking when she was younger with Tony, who comes up later again, right, in the, in the, in the book, in the collection. She gets knocked over. It's not a huge injury, but, you know, it's these kids on bikes, and again, the vitality, right? The ability to do something like that is just so, so, so much reminds her of what, what's the Barbara Streisand song, The Way We Were? 
Yeah, she really longs for that. I guess I wonder what that story is saying about about aging. And obviously there's hypocrisy is not the word because it's unfortunately pretty blatant, but you know, men are allowed to age gracefully, right? And and women women are not. I wonder kind of what that says about aging and about aging for women in particular. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of women who struggle with that and who definitely get this feeling of invisibility mm. in terms of how they're dealt with by the world at large. You know, having lost whatever kind of currency their attractiveness may have given them. So yeah, so so I, I did want to deal with those kinds of issues, but also with this, really, this idea we have that uh, my mother said this to me. She said, "You know, I feel very young inside." Mm. You know, when she was older, and it's true. I think that we carry with us, you know, that sort of young self, and and it, and and there are times at which in which there's sort of a disconnect. From what your body's doing wait a minute <laughs> you know <laughs> i i did that or i could do that or whatever so i wanted that to be part of it and then for her to finally maybe find a way to reconcile to realize that that accumulation of time or those memories that she had you know those are good things and and that it's okay to be who she is now and that it has value especially in relationship to the comfort she's able to offer her oldest friend. Right. She mentioned that it wasn't, there wasn't, they maybe had a couple moments, but there wasn't a romantic. It was, it was a, a platonic relationship. And there is really a quiet beauty in, you know, in her going to visit him. And he, you know, maybe has dementia or he's on that way, but there are times when he's very clear headed, right? Very clear minded. The next story is life after. Oh my gosh. What a, what a piece. <laughs> I remember a story that I read a while back and it was just, it was so simple, but it was about, this group of maybe post-college friends who had lost a friend to, I think, what was AIDS. And they just talked about, like, she just, it was so simple, but she wrote something like, this was the Tuesday. It was almost like the was a capital T. This was the Tuesday, right? And he passed away on, you know, the Thursday. That kind of thing, that just how how everything slows down, but how but how there's such a BC and AD, right? And there's such a before and after. Exactly, exactly. And how complicated those emotions are. You know, the way the way the mother in that story acts, you know, she doesn't expect to act like that. And yet, you know, she's longing for something and she's reaching for something and she doesn't know what it is, you know. In about midway through the story, her line is kind of like you said, her line is, quote, grief makes people crazy. And the grief came from the fact that she lost her son. It was basically like a diving accident. Yeah. You know, he was in college. There's that connection with his his good friend who she known. And, you know, obviously it's a, it's a remind, it's a reminder of him in, in sad ways, but also in happy ways. Her husband is his awkward slash, you know, there's a lack of emotion there. One of the things that I felt was so telling was just um, people and friends. And, and I, and I know, I know that it's, there's no right thing to say when somebody's lost somebody, there's, you, you're never going to make it better. But I've been struck in my own life with some of the like the silences with people not saying anything in your case. Right. And in the case of the story, right, it's kind of like the her the woman's friends are kind of like she's a charity case. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She feels really you know, disconnected to everybody except for her son's friend who is also grieving, you know, and and they share that. And uh, yeah. And, you know, I. 
I guess I don't remember what I was taking some sort of class, either fiction or poetry, but they were talking about the value of making sure that there's more than one thing happening in a story. Mm. The complications are what feeds uh, creative writing, you know? So it's the death is one thing, you know, the mourning is another thing. And then this strange connection to her son's friend is yet another. So like the more complex you can make it, you know, the, the more compelling it'll be for readers. Definitely. Um, you know, so the, so the friend is Ethan. And so their connection is over video game playing. So, you know, the, the narrator is, I don't know, fifties or something like that. And there she is playing forties or fifties. She's there playing, you know, video games with, you know, I love how she like, when she first starts playing too, she's like an arrow there and she's trying to, she can't really, she doesn't know what the heck the, the joystick does. But yeah. she's willing to do it right. And like you said, we just we find these connections in, in weird and strange ways, unexpected ways. The title again is so so breath, not breathtaking. It 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 takes your breath away, I guess. So yes, I guess it's breathtaking. Just this idea that she wants to she writes she writes that she wants to knock on doors, she wants to tell people like you're having fun with your family, this is great, but like that's not how it's always gonna be. And there's there's just a real uh, sadness and profundity in that about this life after, like kind of like now what? Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't say it's a happy ending, but there's an ending that's happier, right? Where there's again, it's all about connection, and, and we we see some of those connections being being made or maybe being kind of re recreated, right? Does a story like that really take it out of you? No, it's funny. I, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, I feel like in many ways. I mean, I feel like part of what I do in fiction is you know, we've all had those kinds of emotions, you know, and so part of it is like a, a channeling of those emotions of a sort of fictional playing out of m- the most difficult emotions one person, you know, a person could feel. And so in some ways, rather than being rather than exhausting me, in some ways, it sort of feels uh, uh, sort of lift, you know, it lifts some of that. Hmm. in a way, because I've had this opportunity to have this kind of cathartic experience with this really, really difficult emotion that in real life, I wouldn't want to touch or handle or would want to get as far away from as I could. But I've done this deep dive on it and been able to resolve it in a way that's sort of satisfying in a way Hmm. where she understands herself better at the end of it, you know, and begins to reach out to people she really wants to make connections with which is so much, you know, so much easier to figure out than it is in real life in the midst of something like that. So I I do feel like it's, there's some benefit, you know, to sort of cathartically live out some of this on the page. I do think it takes a lot out of readers though. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. No doubt about it. It took a lot out of me. It is so, so maybe favorite is not the story, but it's, it's my favorite story from the collection. It's, um, it's beautiful. It's sad. It's, it's heart wrenching. You know, the idea of grief, like it's things don't really get better. They do in different ways and they don't. And and I just thought it was such a realistic portrayal of grief. It reminded me in the best possible ways. Do you, are you familiar with the story In the Gloaming? Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's fantastic. That, I love that comparison. Thank you. Oh, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story. Alice Elliott Dark. And, um, you know, her in that one the the sun dies you know slowly and it's you know a lot of the stories about those last days this one we don't get to know the sun in your story we don't get to know the sun while he's alive only through memories and stuff like that but we have very heartbreaking but incredible portrayal of grief 
grief obviously is 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 a main theme in the story and excuse me in the collection there's a lot about fresh fresh starts or or new beginnings as well um there's one story called after the fall which literally has a, a woman named eve yeah very, very biblical right yeah <laughs> and there are definitely apples involved forbidden fruits if you will i forget her original name but she changed her name moved to washington after a bad breakup yeah i think her name was charlotte charlotte right charlotte okay. charlotte yeah you know, she's kind of portrayed in some ways. Well, she's portrayed at least from his point of view. There's there's another Tony, not the same one we're talking about from before, um, but he's like her boss. She works like in the fields, like in, in Washington State, and he is clearly not the same after his wife has left. He has that look in his eyes, and it's no excuse whatsoever for the way he treats her. Um, but it's almost I saw that as like that she was like this temper temptress, this whole sexist idea that goes all the way back where it's like, it was the woman's fault, right? She tempted me. She tempted the the, the male. I wonder how much that you're talking about earlier, like the metaphorical weight kind of comes later. I wonder how much was like, this is a cool plot. And then like, Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that with that one, the first line came to me that, you know, after her bad breakup, she changed her name and moved to, you know, and, and went to an apple orchard and such. And so yeah. that would, that was the primary driver. And then the rest of it just kind of came from that. Right. Mm. All of that was planted in that first sentence, yes. you know, and as you said, then you start to play around with, you know, apple orchards and temp mm. and this kind of attraction and temptation. And there you are, you know, it almost does the work for you. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I'm a huge believer in the use of vivid detail and objects to do that sort of thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think it makes a, 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 yeah, real difference. There's such a strain in the, in the collection too, of like parents who are, in absentia they're either physically gone they're there are a few you know deaths at, at young ages where the kids were young age mentally they're not there a lot of parents who maybe because of their grief they're working long hours they're not around or when they're talking there's one of the fathers he asked a lot of questions about school but didn't listen to the answers right and so that also goes you know to human connection laura is one of the characters in one of the later stories and she i, I thought that was such a cool story I, i'm not remembering what it, which one it was but she goes downstairs, you know, you think it's going to be like a big time confrontation, right? Loud noise. The dude's like playing rock downstairs and they end up talking. Right. And yeah. she ends up like feeling her son's loss through, through the drums. Human connection is such a generic term, but I wonder what kind of you, you, you see about connections as, as a theme in your book, in your collection. Oh yeah. I mean, I think that's a big part of it. You know, I think I think I think I have a sort of particular preoccupation with emotions and understanding emotions and experiencing them and and you know I'm I feel relatively in touch with my own emotions and stuff and so kind of carrying that spirit into these stories having these people go to places emotionally that are that are really kind of uh, raw or meaningful or real mm -hmm. points of connection that you might not expect. You know, and so for that story, you know, that idea of her, she has a she has a tattoo that has her son's diagnosis yeah. on it, and she traces it with her fingers as she's mourning. But then when you put somebody in bed and they're there by themselves, inevitably you've got to create conflict. So how are you going to do that? Mm -hmm. The noise downstairs, yeah. right? And then as I started to unwind that story, who would be the best person for her to encounter? 
you know, when she goes to see about that noise downstairs, somebody who was a peer of her son, somebody who would, somebody who would have a different view on who he was. And in, and ultimately somebody who offers her a, a, a somewhat cathartic way to work mm. through just a bit of what she's feeling. Yeah. I think you picked yeah. Megadeth, right? That was the song he was, the music he was playing? Yeah. I think so. Tony, we'd mentioned earlier, he's the one that gets visited in maybe a state of dementia or, or failing health. But it's really cool that we learn about him later. I love the, the flash forwards, flashbacks. The story is called Fear of Heights. And there's, again, about connections and... You know, and about youth, about that, the beauty of youth, the innocence of youth. He reminisced, there's there's reminiscing on the love that he had. But there's also an unexpected connections with with Allison and Abby, the friends. And this idea that, like, and again, I thought it was very realistic. In the in the love triangle, if you will, there's he, Tony's not a bad person. He didn't do anything wrong. But it but just there's a sadness there, like, dang it, it didn't work out for you, but you're happy for others. So I wonder about th- this idea of like that that there's not always a culprit. There's not always a guilty party in this. Right, right. Yeah. And that's it. I mean, he was sort of, you know, this just, they discovered these feelings about each other kind of incidentally, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and he did, yeah, he didn't do anything wrong. And it sort of makes his old age story more poignant to know that he had loved and lost like yep, that, yep. you know, um, th- that in, in many ways he'd been on the verge of love many times in his life and never, mm. you know, quite, quite hit it there. Um, yeah. Um, never quite, that never quite made that connection that he needed to make. And so, yeah, that one was really interesting too. And, you know, again, just sort of the a focus on images, a focus on concrete images that could stand in for, um, in for emotional things. The fear of going up to a to a uh, over fire overlook. I forget what they're called mm. in, in a forest, and then you know this imagining that the trees down there were burning as her life was suddenly shifting. Mm. You know, all there's so much power in those kinds of concrete images dropped in in unexpected places. So oh, definitely. Yeah. Like you said, it is so much more poignant knowing that he'd loved and lost. It was almost like before he was, he was just a blank slate when we knew him. And now, now he's not the connections, the, you know, come not just with like romantic. A lot of these are young people who have volatile parents to say the least, either volatile or, or incredibly emotionally cold parents. And there's a solace that's, you know, found with another in the story, Neverland, which, you know, great title, you know, Eileen and Angie find that, um, you know, they run into each other in the store and, and we go back in time and talk about what, um, you know, what things were like before. I'm going to read just a little bit of that story that I thought was so good. Um, again, Eileen and Angie have re have found each other after all these years. They used to play a game that was basically um, hide and seek, but they wanted to be a little bit more grown up. So they called it manhunt, right? So, Eileen says, quote, it's not too late, you know, she said, casting me a sidelong glance. For what? We can ditch all this and go play manhunt. I imagined Eileen hiding near the dumpster in her skirt and high heels. We smiled at each other. It was too late, but I wouldn't be the one to say so. I knew then that we would never talk about the old days, not in a way that mattered. It would stay a neverland, equal parts innocence and menace, which we survived only to find each other on the other side. First of all. I'll drop the mic. What a great, what a great line, especially ending there. I wonder about ideas of of Neverland and never growing up, and you know, 
these are older people. I think I think they'd found a a birthday card that she's fifty. So what yeah. was ten years ago, right? But just yeah. like that, what you were, what you, how you so successfully did this. I guess that juxtaposition of of youth and vitality and and kind of settling into a life maybe that people are not comfortable with. How you played with those ideas of youth and reconnection and 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 just aging. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think we've all had that familiar experience of seeing somebody in the grocery store from from, you know, uh, our, our childhood or from high school and and the sort of jolt it gives you to see who they are now and what they look like now and the memories that you have of various things that may you know, have happened back then. And, and you know, I, I, I particularly in that story, wanted to explore the idea of complicity because, mm-hmm. because the one girl really feels like the other girl was getting abused and she didn't say anything. But then again, she was a child. So, you know, wh- what does it mean to be complicit? And, and as a kid, you know, you just kind of try to stay under the radar. And, and so that was a really captivating you know, thing to sort of play around with as as a, a point of tension in the story. So much goodness in in the collection about the innocence of youth. There's there's a story called Helter Skelter. You did such a good job from the point of view of a kid or a ten year old or a fourteen year old, and you know just the way that a kid would look at things. Like her sister told her, "Don't look at the sun. You know, I think it'll blind you, or you know, bad luck, that type of thing." And then to, to go from that to a little bit later, like, "Oh, the sun must have gotten to my mom's eyes." which we basically understand was suicide, that there was, she, her mother had basically gone out of her car on the, on the freeway and, you know, probably ended it all on purpose, right? That she died by suicide. One of the stories, which definitely starts off very innocent and ends up not so much, these two girls, they're, they play detective games, you know, at the washing machine, like, oh, you know, they're spying on people at the washing machine and just so much, uh, such a great portrayal of youth. Kodachrome, am I saying that correctly? Kodachrome, yeah. And this girl, you know, she there's this famous photographer that comes around into town. And I don't even know if she knows what spurred her to do it, but she basically, like, before her parents come back, because he was going to take pictures, she's basically like, take one now. And she basically undresses, and it's a very revealing photo. And, <laughs> right, and she talks about, she looked at it, you know, later on, and she's like, man, there's no colors, and it's just about, it's hard to tell what was to come. And just ideas of really capturing youth, capturing that moment with a picture and then with the way that you use you know you use your words to, to paint these images with that story in particular the story opens with her finding her father's you know girly magazine and and instead um, of really noticing because she's so innocent she doesn't notice the nudity she notices the colors huh. and that's so it's kind of a callback at the end because mm-hmm. she you know the pictures in black and white and she wanted a picture that would show her colors the way those people in the magazine had shown theirs. Mm-hmm. And again, it's, it's, it's so much innocence that I've had people question like, you know, did she, you know, what was that? Was that character quite right? <laughs> like people have mm-hmm. asked me questions, but again, I want, I want the character to be like unique and very, again, something a little different, you know, let's explore yeah. a different way of looking at the world. So, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. So, so some of the greatness of the collection is just that that juxtaposition between the way we were, the way we are, innocence of youth. Not that everything is depressing and sad, but that last story, it's like, man, this guy notices that everyone's getting older and people are dying and some people are a little bit older than him. And, you know, he plays basketball and he's aching. I get I get that one, you know, and um, that, that last story is called Swimming. It's just, again, that, to me, it's the juxtaposition. It's the 
it's the last scene of The Godfather 2 when Michael Corleone's sitting there and he's and he's thinking about the way things were and now the way things are, there's that tension, right? Exactly. I guess that brings me to my kind of my last question. It's just about like how you ordered the collection to really get that payoff for, you know, we get to know Tony and that he had loved and lost a little bit later on. It wouldn't maybe it wouldn't yeah. have been powerful in the same story. How did you kind of go about ordering it to get the most bang for your buck? You know, it's interesting. I did take the advice of, of Lee Martin, uh, who said that when you're structuring a collection, you want to put your strongest stories at the beginning and at the ending. Hmm. And then, the, you know, kind of if you think there are things that may be less strong, kind of put it in the middle. So there may be a degree to which the 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 payoff was sort of happenstance in some ways, um, you know, but I definitely at one point kind of thought through, you know, kind of laid them all out and said, okay, what should go where? Mm. Um, I really, that image at the end of the swimming story, you know, uh, was full of light and sort of optimistic. And yes. so, you know, I liked that as an end to a story that starts with, you know, this horrible kidnapping. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, but uh, yeah, that was. Well, yeah, please, those who are listening, do not think this book is all depressing and sadness. For sure, not. There's so much connection, human connection. There are optimism. There is optimism. There are lights shown. Like you said, that last image is is a great one from from swimming, the last story of the collection. The you know, I mean, there are literal car crashes in the book, or accidents. You know, people getting hit by cars. So there's a lot of action, for sure these short stories with the economy of language, a lot happens, but like I've mentioned before, the silences are really telling and it's just a, it's just a masterwork in, in really balancing those two. Thank you for your really in-depth and wonderful read. I, you know, it's just a pleasure to talk to you about it. There's no other way. And, and short stories are my, my, my first love. And so I love to see a collection. I love how you, 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 you labeled a loosely linked collection. Cause that makes a lot of sense. Definitely. People need to buy it and they need to, you know, we're going to make, we're going to remind them in, you said February of 2024? February of 2024, Beware the Tall Grass through uh, CSU Press. So, and, and Lost Girls is from which press? Lost Girls is from Touchpoint Press. Yeah, and yeah. it's, a, yeah, it's available on uh, all independent, your local independent or through Amazon. And yeah. You mentioned Carmichael's in your area. Yes. Carmichael's Bookstore. Awesome. Great bookstore. Yeah. Where, where can we find you online, social media, get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm at, I think it's Ellen Burkett Morris writer on Facebook. I'm, uh, I'm at Burkett underscore Morris on uh, Twitter. I'm on, I'm at Ellen Burkett Morris on Instagram and I've got my website is uh, Ellen Burkett Morris dot Inc. So I N K. Okay. Oh, so nice. Different. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. So how'd you, how'd you get one of those? You know, I did it through a company called, uh, well, AWP, uh, the Association of Writers and Writers Writing Programs, had a special through a company called Pork Bun, mm. which they're a hosting company, and they offered those those uh, cool. particular domains, and I thought, well, that's kind of fun. So, <laughs> yeah. So if you're looking again on online, the the last name is spelled is spelled B I R K E T T. So Ellen Burkett Morris. Yeah. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Congrats um, on the prize coming up for February. Looking forward to that book. And um, it was so cool to talk to you and get, you know, the 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 feedback, get the get into the the laboratory, so to speak. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it thoroughly.
Such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to episode 190 with Alan Burkett Morris. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa. Find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills of Will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills of Will PO1, the digit one. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube, the Chills of Will podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills at Will podcast Patreon. And thank you to new member Mary Pasquale. The Chills at Will podcast Patreon can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. My last name is R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This month's Patreon special episode, bonus episode for Patreon, is available on July 7th, and that was a great conversation with Daniel Allen Cox. We discuss his, quote, kaleidoscopic and deeply felt memoir, unquote, which is called I Felt the End Before It Came, Memoirs of a Queer Ex-Jehovah's Witness. You're not going to want to miss that conversation. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode is Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 191 with Sarah Fawn Montgomery. She is the author of Halfway From Home, a collection of essays, Quite Mad, an American Pharma Memoir, and three poetry chapbooks. An assistant professor at Bridgewater State University, her work has been listed as notable in Best American Essays many times. This episode will air on July 11th. For now, thanks again for listening, and I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Alan Burkett Morris, whose work, like Lost Girls, gives you chills at will. Mm-hmm.